Hello. Hey, how you doing? Hey, I am doing great. I worked a lot of hours last week and I was a little worn out from work, but it is now my weekend and I have lots of free time in front of me, some good family time even behind me and in front of me. I'm feeling refreshed and I'm super excited to be talking to you. How are you? That's awesome. I'm doing really good. I am recording for the first time in my new office that I'm going to be working out of now that I have transitioned out of the church I was working at. Uh, I'm going to be doing some coaching and some other freelance stuff, and I'm going to be working out of this office. So I'm surrounded by boxes, but I'm excited to be in this new space. It's going to be exciting. Oh, man. You sent me a picture of it just before we started recording as well, and I am jealous. That looks like a spacious and just beautiful place. Yeah, I'm excited. It's peaceful. It's quiet. It's going to be great. So I am excited. Yeah. Well, I kind of already know, but what's on your mind today? What did you call for? Yes, we are in the middle of this Summer in the Psalms series, and I was reading through some of the Psalms this week, and there was one that I really wanted to talk to you about, and that is Psalm 86. And so I texted you earlier and said, hey, I want to talk about Psalm 86, and I texted you some questions, and you, uh, if I recall correctly, your response was, I'm not sure how interested I am in those questions. And then you started <laughs> digging into the psalm and texted me back, oh, I really do want to talk about this. This is going to be great. Uh, and so I am super curious what happened between communication one and communication two when your interest level spiked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> honestly, it's because I went from reading the text in English to reading the text in Hebrew. And all of a sudden, this psalm just came alive for me, and there were so many awesome things to dig into. And I was like, yes, please, let's get into all of this. I, I'm i just so jazzed. I'm so thrilled that we finally get to do this episode because I want to nerd out on the Hebrew and find out what relevance it has to understanding this psalm. Okay, then I'm... Super curious. I took one year of Hebrew, but I don't remember hardly anything about Hebrew at all. And so I'm just curious, as you walked to the text in its original language, what stuck out to you the most then, if that's what got you super excited? Yeah, the thing that first tipped me off that maybe I should go look into the Hebrew. I've said this a thousand times during our Summer in the Psalms series, but how about a thousand and one? I'm really fascinated by the fact that every time the English translators come across the name Yahweh, they put it in all caps, Lord, L-O-R-D, all in caps. And that mm -hmm. signifies that we're dealing with the word Yahweh. And if you look at this psalm in an English translation, you will see the word Lord a few different times in all caps, indicating we're dealing with the word Yahweh. However, you will also see a number of other times where Lord is capital L, but then lowercase O-R-D. And so we're actually dealing with the Hebrew equivalent of my Lord, uh, Adonai. And so the literal word Adonai is being written instead of the literal word Yahweh. 
And I thought, huh, this is really interesting. And I still don't know what to do with that, even reading it in the Hebrew. Yep, there it is, exactly as you would expect. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know that it has any significance other than I found it really interesting. And I feel like on first read in the English translation, it's easy to glance past that detail. And so then that's got me thinking, okay, what other details? Is it easy to look past? And so ultimately that came down for me to this idea of nefesh. And nefesh is a word that gets used a number of times in this psalm. And sometimes it is translated as life, and sometimes it is translated as soul. And I find it really fascinating that that changes our understanding of the passage. We kind of get confused between the word life and soul and think they're different things. Mm, Yeah, that's interesting. You know, so two things there. First of all, backing up to your thought about the difference between Yahweh and Lord— the Alec Moyer devotional commentary that I've been using. So whenever this happens, he intentionally translates the one that is not God's name as sovereign one in order to make the point. Mm. And he pauses and makes the point that that phrase, sovereign one or Lord, not meaning God's name, happens exactly seven times in this psalm. And he says, rather like you just did, That's very interesting and seems like it means something, but huh, is sort of what I get out of his commentary. (laughs) Yes. And we know that in Hebrew poetry, well, in all, all of Hebrew writing, they had these structures, right? They had these structures, including the number of times something was stated that was significant in some way. And I'm actually forgetting it that at the moment is is seven the number of completion? Is that what seven signifies? That is my recollection. I am not someone who's going to get overly lost in numerology as some readers of the Bible might. However, in a poem where every word is very carefully decided and calculated, it's hard for me to imagine that was an accident. Yeah. I think it's fascinating, actually, now that you mentioned that. I wrote down what verses Adonai was written in. And so I, okay, it's written in this verse, this verse, this verse, this verse. I didn't stop to count the fact that that means it was done seven times and that this might be in some way completion or fulfillment or perfection or you know whatever numerology might mean there. But it's fascinating in a poem, in a psalm that really means... Lord, I'm placing my hope in you. I've got a bunch of bad guys after me. They want to kill me. And I'm placing my hope in you. You are my sovereign, not any of these other people that seek my life. That that is in some way a complete or perfect idea. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Because he goes on to say at one point that God's sovereignty... And he lists all the ways that God is made shown as sovereign in these verses. God is shown as unique and sovereign in heaven among the gods in creation, his works, on earth, meaning the people of the earth, because all will acknowledge him, in events, the wonderful things he does, and so on and so on. And yeah, I wonder if it is a driving kind of subtle reminder of his 
lordship, his sovereignty, and the completeness or fulfillment of that on the earth or in creation. Mm. But that was just, oh, go ahead. If you have other thoughts about that, that's great. But I was actually wanting to come back to your primary thought about that word that you were using, uh, nefesh, nefesh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, nefesh. Yeah, let I yeah, let's dive in there cuz that's fantastic as well. Yeah. Yeah, tell me about that. So, nefesh, I actually did some reading because nefesh is kind of an all-encompassing word and I was trying to figure out, okay, if I'm going to talk about this word on the podcast, let me try to be a little more educated than my vague notion of this word might indicate. And yet, there's still a lot of debate about this word or a lot of uh, nuance around this word. In its original concrete form, it really probably means more like breath. But as the author that I was reading about this word was indicating, in so many instances, it's kind of the the seat of desire. And yes, it, it Im- implies life, but it means more than just biological life. There are other Hebrew words that mean that, or just this uh, notion of being a living being. But Nefesh is much more uh, like vitality and your seat of desires. I mean, sometimes it's used even of sexual desire, but it can be a desire for God, a thirst for the soul, a thirst of the soul. Um, It can be a lot of different things, but it can also just overall signify one's life or sometimes our translators translate it as soul. And so you see in this translation, that sometimes life is used, sometimes soul is used, and neither of them are wrong, but both of them point to this word nefesh. And unless we realize that our English word is pointing to one overarching concept, nefesh, we might get really hung up on the word life and really hung up on our modern understanding of soul and think that they are different things. And that really changes our reading of the passage. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, that was the first thing that I texted you about. I was texting you saying, okay, the word soul is very odd here to me. What's going on here? And so this is fascinating to me. So if we step outside of the spiritual words we're forced to use, life, soul, what are the closest words or phrases to kind of the heart of this word? Honestly, I don't disagree with the translators. Life and soul really do embody this word really well. The problem is our modern understanding of these words. We can think of life simply as biological existence. This word nefesh is deeper than that. It's, It's vitality. It's being a living, breathing human being, that is a, a very different thing than just simply being alive. Um, yeah, the so, phrase that keeps, or the two phrases that keep coming to mind as I'm trying to like figure out what I would use for this, because the word soul trips me up, I keep landing on my very being or my yes. very essence. Yes. Yeah. Well, and we even talked about this way back in episode 13 when we talked about what is the soul. And our modern understanding of the soul, like that spiritual part of us that lives on after death, is not fully accurate. 
And we need to broaden out this definition better. And so unless we're operating with that clearer vision of what soul means, we can really get led astray by that word soul in in the translation. It's not that the translation is wrong. It's that our conception of the word is not quite accurate. So then how does that play into the way you read what is being said here? Yeah. So let me read the four different verses that nefesh is used. And I will, instead of substituting whatever the English translation is using here, I'll just simply say nefesh. And having heard it that way, I'd love to get your reaction to how it changes the context for you. So this is verse two. Preserve my nefesh, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Verse four. Gladden the nefesh of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my nephesh. Verse 13. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my nephesh from Sheol. And verse 14. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my nephesh, and they do not set you before them. How does that strike you? Boy, it does speak to the fact that I read the word life and the word soul as very different. I would not have known verse 2 and verse 4 were talking about the same thing. And then that second part, what was that? Verse 13 and verse 14? I would have had no idea those were talking about. I would have switched. What this tells me is that I have a very split level view of the universe. I believe in a two-story universe where the first floor is the physical universe and the second floor built on top of it is the spiritual universe. And certain things are in the first floor and certain things are in the second floor. And my soul is in the second floor, but my life is in the first floor. Mm. And I try hard not to believe that. But if this is all saying the same thing, If this is saying, and I would love a little bit of a mini introduction to the word Sheol later, but if this is saying you delivered my life from the depths of Sheol and a band of ruthless men seeks my life and it's the same concept, there is a clear sense of continuity between the two that is stronger than what I normally live with. Does that make sense? It totally does. And that's what struck me about this psalm once I started reading it in the Hebrew. I'm like, wait a minute, this whole thing comes alive when I can see that the word nefesh, you know, works its way throughout, or the words Adonai and Yahweh work their way throughout this passage. There is there's a very unifying theme that the author is trying to get at, right? My nefesh is in danger. You are the one that saves my nephesh, and you are my sovereign. I put my hope in you. Please come, sovereign, and save me. That's Absolutely. that's the unifying theme. Well, and I'm just fascinated that whether it be hell or assassins, it's still the same thing. It's still just trying to ruin his nephesh. Right. Uh, 
Yes. You know, like on no level do I normally put those in the same category. Well, I mean, I sp- especially if maybe we substitute the word vitality for a moment, right? You can see mm. how hell would rob somebody of their vitality. Or I'm not sure that hell actually is the right definition for Sheol. So, yeah, we might need to get into that. But, um, you know, you can see how Sheol and, you know, assassins would rob somebody equally of their vitality. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I'm, I am curious... When I see the word Sheol, if we can pause and come back to that, because this is the second time we've said maybe we should talk about that. If we can take a quick detour, when I think of Sheol, I used to think of hell. And over the last few years, I've more come to think of something more like the Greek myth of Hades, this sort of land of the dead. I'm not saying either of those are right, by the way. I'm acknowledging that I don't have a clear referent for that word, and I've not done the work to find a good referent. So I'm curious what you know about that word, Sheol. Yeah, this is a really tough word. And the second I come down on an interpretive decision, I know that half of scholarship disagrees with me. It's largely because it this comes down to one's understanding of what the Old Testament does or does not teach about the afterlife. So what concepts may have been embedded in this word for the original audience? And that is up for supreme debate. But the author that I was reading in preparation for talking about this psalm, by the way, it was from the theological word, word book of the Old Testament. So I did a, a study on Nefesh in the theological word book of the Old Testament, and then also a, a study on Sheol from that same book. And the author there indicated that basically Sheol was just a term for kind of the darkness, the desolation of the grave. It's just the deep, dark pit of death. So it's a little more evocative than, say, just a grave. So it's kind of the emptiness and the tragedy, I guess, if you will, of the dark, empty, or the dark expanse of the grave. But whether or not that constitutes some level of underworld or hell or whatever, he didn't think it did. Now, there's plenty of other scholars that would disagree. And so there's a lot of debate. But I kind of land a little bit more on a non-theological use of the word, that this is more of an evocative instance of just, this is what death is like. And so in this passage, if, if we take my understanding of Sheol and apply it, and especially when we come to the word nefesh, this is not, you saved my soul from hell. This is, you saved my vitality from being at the very bottom of the grave. Yeah, which is fascinating. Particularly, I know you said it, it's a, to take it as a semi-non-theological word, but It's fascinating to me if we think of ourselves as people who believe in resurrection rather than people who believe in an afterlife where everybody's dead, but some of them are in heaven and some of them are in hell, Hmm. right? Because it's, we do believe we are delivered from the depths of the grave. Sure, sure. But we understand that in a very different sense than the original audience would have. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. What I think is fascinating about the way you're describing it is that there is a vagueness to it that can be later sharpened in the New Testament, but it really is just a very, the very point of the word is the vagueness and darkness and otherworldliness of death. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, at least in my estimation, and let, you know, give me, <laughs> let me repeat my caveat that not everybody would agree with me. Fair enough. All right. So you, what else? What else is striking you about this chapter? Yeah, the last thing that really strikes me about this is, honestly, I'm tipping my hat toward my thought later because my thought is going to ping off of this. I read this passage at about the same time that I read Miroslav Volf's Exclusion and Embrace, which I know you're reading as well. Is that right? Yes. I had taken about a year-long pause from reading it because I was reading it whenever I mowed the lawn, and then my children got old enough to mow the lawn. And uh, now, having heard that you're reading it, I am going back to it. It is one of those brilliant and inspiring books that I absolutely am awed by. Yes. And so this has been on my reading list for a long time, and I'm so thrilled that I'm finally picking it up. But one of the words that stands out to me in Hebrew in this passage is hesed. Uh, which has various translations, but I prefer covenantal love or covenantal faithfulness. I think that this is a word, uh, some translators say steadfast love, which is great, but I I really want to tie it back to the covenant because I think this is God's love for his people, his covenant people, and it's a faithfulness and a commitment to his people with whom he is in covenant. And that love and that faithfulness is always preserved. God is always faithful to his covenant. He is always loving toward his covenantal people. And so I think that's the sense in which hesed is intended. And so it's really hard to bring all of that across into one term. And so that's why I think you see a variety of different terms for hesed. But I see hesed come in this passage like three different times referring to, you know, again, Oh, my sovereign, in whom I'm placing trust, there's these evil people that are seeking my nephesh. Please come and save me, and I trust in your hesed, your love, your faithfulness, your covenantal relationship with us. And so I was reading this passage at about the same time that I came across a quote in uh, Exclusion and Embrace. And so if you don't mind, I'd love to read you what Wolf said about the covenant that God created with Israel. Yes, please, just read slowly. I've never read a sentence of his work that I got the first time. Oh, for crying out loud, no joke. His sentences are dense. So yes, I will read slowly, and uh, audience, if you are driving, you might want to hit pause until you can focus really, really carefully. So he says, God's self-giving on the cross— is a consequence of the, quote, eternality of the covenant, which in turn rests on God's, quote, inability to give up on the covenant partner who has broken the covenant. Then he continues, God's commitment is irrevocable and God's covenant indestructible. And then he continues a moment later, it can be broken, 
but it cannot be undone. Every breach of the covenant still takes place within the covenant, and all the struggle for justice and truth on behalf of the victims of the broken covenant still takes place within the covenant. Nobody is outside of the social covenant. No deed is imaginable which would put a person outside of it. I loved this. According to Wolf, the covenant is the state of affairs. It is how the relationship functions. It is immutable. It cannot be changed. You can violate the covenant. You can break the covenant. But we only ever understand those terms themselves in context of the actual covenant. Those terms make no sense if the covenant has somehow been undone. It's never been undone. The covenant is. And God, what Hesed teaches us, and what I see in this passage, is that God will always be faithful to that covenant. No matter what we do, no matter how badly we break it, he will not. He is faithful to the covenant 100% of the time. Ooh. Well, this tells me two things. First of all, we're going to have to have a whole conversation about Miroslav Volf's book because I have a hundred questions about just that one quote. So let's make sure that quote comes back in our conversation about exclusion and embrace. And we're giving anybody who's listening fair warning, go listen to exclusion and embrace uh, maybe six times, and then you'll be ready for that episode. <laughs> right. Uh, it's a heavy one. Oh, it's you know, so it's, heavy. It's funny. It's one of those books, the words, I can let them flow over me, and I'm like, yeah, 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 absolutely, of course. And then if I listen deeper, I'm like, oh, oh. It seems yeah. perfectly obvious until I pay close attention, and then I start thinking, there's a lot here. And he may be trying to rebuild an entire structure of thought. It may look slightly different from mine at the beginning, but it may take me in a completely different direction. And I'm not completely sure yet. Mm -hmm. And he meticulously rebuilds a new system of thought. So that's why this book is so dense is he leaves no stone unturned. For real. And it's just, it's just stunning. So We will get there, but for the purposes of this conversation, I think at least that illustrates why the sense of God's faithfulness and love have to at least have echoes in the covenant for us to have any real sense of what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So you've asked a a bunch of questions, and I've nerded out really heavy on the Hebrew here. I'm curious what stood out to you. You on you honestly asked if I would like consider talking about this psalm in particular. So what stood out to you? Uh, there are a couple of things. One that I just absolutely love from a, a practical discipleship point of view. If I were to ask somebody, what is the goal of discipleship? One of the things that's fascinating to me is that I suspect many of us who work in the discipleship world can't answer that quickly. We don't have a quick answer, right? We're trying to disciple people into what? Well, I want to be more like Jesus. Okay, what does that mean? Yeah. I think that this psalm offers me at least the beginnings of an answer of what is the goal of discipleship. 
in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That last phrase, unite my heart to fear your name. That is as good an end goal of discipleship as I have ever heard. Hmm. I suspect all of our problems in the spiritual life come from having a divided or disunited heart, pulling me in multiple directions, loving God at one moment, loving my broken desires at another. And just this idea of a united heart is such a beautiful picture of what we're aiming for, I think, in the spiritual life. I completely agree. Which actually brings me to a question here. I'm fascinated. What do you think the relationship is between kind of that relational element, uniting our hearts with God, and being saved from evil people that want to destroy your nefesh? How do those things go together? Why do they exist in the same psalm? Ooh, that's a fascinating question. You know, I wonder... On some level, it seems like this whole psalm is exploring who God is and what it means to have a life or nefesh that is fully Godward. Our hearts are not united to fear God when we are in the middle of a burning building, right? I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aside. <laughs> We desperately need God to remove certain things from our lives for us to fully have a heart that is fully set on God. Things that we can't remove from our daily life by ourselves. And we also mm. need God's help removing internal obstacles as well. And, and so the, it almost feels to me like this is the theme verse of the psalm that everything else is kind of exemplifying. God, the insolent men who rise up against me, the other gods, this is what he's looking for. He wants a heart that he's united in, in loving God, in fearing God. And so he's trying to set his mind on the ways and works of God, the character of God, the actions of God. He's surrendering everything else up to God. You know, I love the way you're reading that. It makes me think of this psalm in a whole new light. Because if that's the case, then the psalmist is not just looking for physical deliverance from people who want to kill him. He is looking for deliverance from all the ways that having evil people pursuing him robs him of his vitality, including mm. the mental anguish, the distraction, the temptation to not unite our hearts with God and to focus on our problems right in front of us, almost like, you know, Peter getting out of the boat and then looking at the waves instead of looking at Jesus. Like, just having these people after him is a threat to his vitality, not just physically, but also emotionally, spiritually, mentally, whatever. Yeah. I, I It reminded me, as you were saying that, of, of the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. Whether it's evil outside or evil inside, because ultimately what I want is a life with you. Yeah. Hmm. What a good psalm. We often invite people to engage with us in social media and 
to share our episodes with friends. But boy, on top of that, I just want to invite people to read the Psalms carefully and have a conversation with a friend this week. Like whether I ever hear about it or you ever hear about it or not, almost all of my favorite insights in reading the Bible have come from deep conversations, which isn't of itself a discipline that has to be practiced, right? Mm, uh, yeah. And I say that so that some people won't get discouraged if they try and it doesn't go super well. It's a discipline. You have to get good at it. But please have conversations about the Psalms. Uh, and we would love to hear your thoughts about this particular Psalm. I have 10 questions we didn't get a chance to get to. Uh, and I'm sure <laughs> so do you. And I would love to hear what people think about various things that either they did understand or didn't understand or they found profound or they found uncomfortable. I am so curious what everybody else sees when they read Psalm 86. Absolutely. I would love to hear from everybody. And uh, thank you guys for following along with our Summer in the Psalm series. I know it has been so enriching for me personally. And knowing I'm doing that with others is really, really fantastic. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so let's turn the conversation. I know you gave us a bit of your thought in advance. Did you already share your entire thought with us or is there more there that we get to hear about? I think there's a little bit more and it comes from Psalm 89. So if we think about Wolf's argument that everything happens within the context of the covenant and that the covenant itself cannot be undone. It can be broken, but not undone. And God will always remain faithful to it. With that in mind, I was reading Psalm 89 as well. And so if you don't mind, I love to read the ESV version. And this would be verses 28 through 34. And just keep in mind what Wolf had to say, because I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, read away. My steadfast love, Hesed, I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my hesed, my steadfast love, or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. I, I read that and went, okay, I think Wolf's right. No kidding, right? That is it right there. Yeah. That's it. I have nothing else. That's amazing. I, I wish I had other thoughts, but you are absolutely correct. The only thing to say to that is, okay, Wolf knows what he's talking about. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but how about you? Well, my psalm thought this week is from Psalm 95, which is in the Book of Common Prayer. And so I have read it or heard it read hundreds of times. Yeah. And it contains some of the most beautiful language in the Book of Psalms, I think. I love where it says... The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. 
and on it goes. And I could I could read the whole thing, and it's just stunning. But what was fascinating to me about it is for all the hundreds of times I have read that psalm, one of the things I think I mentioned early on, I just preached this week, and I, I don't know if I said it in the sermon or if I've said it on the podcast, but one of the most interesting lessons about the book of Psalms to me is actually not even from the book of Psalms. It's from the book of Jonah. And it has to do with the fact that Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish is deeply steeped in the Psalms, in what is both literally and metaphorically the lowest point in his life. The book of Psalms is so well digested in his soul, in his nefesh, that <laughs> it, it comes back out in his prayers. And I was reflecting as I hit Psalm 95 in our reading, whatever day that was, this language hasn't gotten that deep down in me yet, even though I've heard it hundreds of times. And it was a reminder to me to keep savoring the Psalms I love and have heard a hundred times as much as to dig into the ones I haven't heard, because all of it needs to get deeper into my, you know, I, every time I use the word soul from this time forth, I'm going to be thinking about our conversation. But uh, <laughs> it needs to get literally worked deep down into the very essence of my life. That is what I want. Yes. I know we've said it a thousand times. That was the whole driving force behind doing this Summer in the Psalm series. We can't spend enough time with these psalms. They need to yeah, be exactly. They need to rise up from the from our very nefesh. Yes, that's it. Exactly. Well, once again, from the heights of awe-inspiring texts to the banal mundanity of a witch Josh question. Uh, would you like to do the honors this week? Uh, sure, I would love to. Yeah, so witch Josh was almost murdered at Carlisle Lake in Illinois. And that is me, Josh from Oregon. This is such a crazy, crazy story. And I'm so thrilled that we this came up uh, so that we could put this on the podcast. So yes, I this... love this story. Please tell this story. <laughs> okay. Um, so this was spring break of our freshman year of college. And it was me and my college roommate with whom I do all my translating still to this day. And my now wife and her roommate. And so all four of us took spring break and we decided to go camping. And we traveled over to Carlisle Lake, Illinois, because it's a place that I had been before. And there's this beautiful camping spot right along the lake. So we went and we had the whole campground to ourselves. And it was wonderful. But we didn't have a lot of equipment. Uh, we were just, we were in college. We didn't have a bunch of stuff in our dorm rooms. So we just kind of spliced together the essentials, but nothing more. And while we were there, odd things were happening that we only pieced together later. Like this blue truck that would come circle through the campground and leave once or twice a day. Thought nothing of it. Uh, there was a white car sitting at the edge of the campground uh, with its hood up, but nobody was ever working on the vehicle. Eh, all right, whatever. Nobody around. And 
then like this red car comes driving through the campground at one point and then just kind of leaves. And so we thought nothing of any of this. It just was happenings around us. But like I said, we were the only ones in this campground. And then it started to get to be dusk and we hadn't seen any persons or vehicles in many an hour. And all of a sudden, this dude shows up in our campground. And we don't have lanterns or flashlights or anything like that. We just had the fire going. And so we're like, huh, let's just kind of put a little bit more wood on the fire so we can see this guy. He's standing just outside of the firelight and just starts talking to us. And he's got this whole cockamamie story about how he's hitchhiking across the country, trying to find his roots and all of these things. He claims his name is Jonathan and all this stuff. And he's looking for a place like to set up camp, but he doesn't want to pay. So have we seen any rangers around recently? And we're like, uh, well, you could probably camp over there. There's lots of sites. And then he like sets down his bag right next to the girls' tent. Just thud. I'm like, what is in that bag? Uh, and he unzips it where we can't see him. He's unzipping it and he's going through it. And we're like, holy crap, what is going to happen here? And so ultimately he sets up his tent right next to the girls' tent and then sits down by the fire because we kind of invited him a little closer where we can keep an eye on him. And he pulls out this huge knife and just starts sharpening this stick over by the fire, claiming it's a very dull knife, but it is a very sharp knife. And he just keeps, as we're talking, he just keeps checking his watch and just keeps checking his watch. And a little while later, a car comes into the campground, turns around so it shines its headlights on us, and then shuts off, turns off the headlights. The doors open up and close and is never heard from again. Then a little while later, another vehicle enters the campground, does the exact same thing from a different vantage point in the campground. Again, never heard from again. Nobody sets up camp. Nobody talks. Nothing. And after a while, we hear some rustling in the bushes near our campground and somebody coughed. And it's at this point, three out of the four of us freaked out and we're done. We're going to pack up camp. We're going to get out of there. Uh, my college roommate, bless him, had no idea that anything was the wrong, the matter. He's like, hey, I just got my guitar. Let's sing some worship songs. Let's teach this guy about Jesus. It's going to be great. And so he's having a grand old time by the fire, has no idea that we very much are in a pickle. Anyway, we pack up the campground in record time. There's all sorts of little things that we piece together later about how they were very likely watching us all weekend that we were there and they wanted us out of there. I don't know, to cook drugs or do whatever, but we packed up in record time and flew out of there. And, uh, that's the story of how I almost got murdered at Carlisle Lake. That is a creepy story. Yes. Yes. Uh, it was really hard to go camping after that for a long, long time, but we muddled through. I bet. Man, yeah. How scary. Well, with that, should we have another scary conversation next week? Yes, let's do it. I will talk to you next week. All right. Have a good one. All right. Bye.